This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Tonight, the orchestra is in Toronto. Only a five-hour bus ride this time, which makes it a lot easier than flying to China, as we did last month. The NAC Orchestra has always had a mandate to tour, especially within Canada. As well as spreading our bit of musical culture around the country, it gives the orchestra a chance to play in different halls and meet colleagues from other orchestras. Over the years, many orchestras from Canada and around the world have played in Ottawa, the Montreal Symphony and the Toronto Symphony have probably been to Ottawa more often than the others, so it seems appropriate that we visit them on a pretty regular basis too. The NEC Orchestra has evolved considerably since the early days when a 46-piece orchestra toured with a pretty restricted repertoire. Since Pinker Zuckerman's arrival, the orchestra has grown in size, plays a greater variety of music, and frequently adds extra players for larger works. This is no haphazard affair. There are musicians in every city who play with a local orchestra for years without having a permanent contract. Ottawa is no exception, so when the orchestra does tackle bigger works and has to add a few extra players, there is a large body of musicians available who fit in seamlessly. As a result, the program tonight is in a way a tale of two orchestras. The first half of the program might have been chosen by Mario Bernardi back in 1970. It features Mozart's Overture to the Magic Flute and his third violin concerto performed by Pincus. The second half of the concert consists of Shostakovich's 10th symphony. You might say that the dessert comes first and the main course comes second, although in terms of musical digestion, it makes perfect sense. So the second half after the first, you might say, now for something completely different. Shostakovich was a great symphonic composer who, in my opinion at least, is finally being given the respect he deserves. Russian composers have always been renowned for their rich orchestral palette, due in part to Rimsky-Korsakov, who during his time as inspector of Russian naval bands came to appreciate the potential of winds, brass, and percussion. He passed on his ideas for colorful orchestrations to a generation of students and the results can be heard in all of the Russian music that came afterwards. Compare the symphonies of Brahms and Dvorak with those of Tchaikovsky, their contemporary, and you'll see what I mean. Stravinsky probably represents the pinnacle of the early Russian orchestral school, especially in his works for ballet. During the 20th century, the main Russian symphonic composers were Prokofiev and Shostakovich. Their symphonies are much darker in mood than those of their predecessors. Not surprising when you consider the history of Russia during that period. Shostakovich was deeply affected by the political and artistic repression he encountered during his career. Many of his works and those of his friends were banned or suppressed or received cool receptions when they were performed. 
His greatest achievement, however, probably unequaled by any other composer, past or present, is to provide a musical picture of the age he lived in. It is often a picture of despair. There was not much to cheer about in Stalin's Russia. But in the midst of the general conformity, there are occasionally voices of individual hope. One of Shostakovich's compositional techniques is to give an extended single solo voice, often to the flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, or horn. Sometimes he'll write a dark and threatening bass line using basses, low brass bassoons, and contrabassoon, contrasted with a mass of higher pitches, including in the 10th symphony, two piccolos. The effect can be quite stark. Listening to any Shostakovich symphony, but particularly the 10th, you can hear in the music fear, horror, violence, loneliness, and despair. There are few moments of easeful resolution or peace. Even the jaunty, circus-like prestos have an undercurrent of menace and barely disguised violence. In order to shed some more light on the music of Shostakovich and life in what was then the Soviet Union, I've invited my friend and colleague, violinist Lev Berenstein, to join me. Lev, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> so we have a few questions to start things off, and then we'll see where we go. First of all, where, where were you born? And when were you born? It's interesting. I was born in 1948 in Kharkov, which was then Ukraine, but still Soviet Union. So how does the music of Shostakovich represent your own experience growing up there and becoming a musician? I became a musician not because of music of Shostakovich, but today, after lifetime in music, music of Shostakovich basically represents a lot in, in, in my life. Um, more, more, I guess, from the life of my parents. Um, but um, it's, um, it's an incredible musical diary. Um, I think that Shostakovich, being a, a great symphonic composer, he, 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 he wrote a musical diary. You don't need to, to read books to find what was to live in these years under the Comrade Stalin, under the guidance, mm, I shall say, of Comrade Stalin. Uh, you just listen to the 10th, to for example, and you know it all. And um, then Shostakovich even signed up the musical confession with DSCH. That's right, the motif that occurs throughout the piece. Yeah. I am here, I can see it, I saw it, and I signed for it. You know, like when they interrogate you in police, you have to sign every page of your confession. Is this what he was doing? His, his autobiography was called Testament. Right. How do you think his music is another kind of testament? Personally, uh, I think that his music is much stronger testament to, to his life than the book. There are a lot of discussions about this book. Was it true? Was it not true? It's absolutely irrelevant. Uh, my it's my opinion. You want to know his biography, what he felt? Listen to the music. Listen to the music which he wrote when he was in his 20s, uh, The Nose, which was never published uh, up until, what, 1973? No, never played, never performed again. Uh, listen to his first symphony, to his piano concerto, and then listen to the 10th symphony and say, why would man evolve in such a way? 
and then you have to read some books and realize why. Even his first symphony, which I think he was about 19 when he wrote it, wasn't he? 18 yeah. or 19. Yeah. That slow movement still has that sort of archetypal Shostakovich despair sound in it. Well, because it was hard years. Yeah. It was immediately after revolution. It was life was hard, but it was still hope. This was the finale mm -hmm. of the concerto and the trumpet and the nose with brilliance. He wrote things which nobody even could think about. He, you know, even today they are contemporary. He was way ahead. How does he fit in with his contemporaries, not just musical contemporaries, but uh, writers? Um, with real writers, with real people, it fits very well with people who are, I guess, less talented. Uh, well, they saw only, they envy, they, you know, they usually in creative arts, there is a lot of envy, there is a lot of things going between people. Um, I think he was on a different level from most of people around him. I think sometimes when you hear his music, it reminds me of some of the paintings that uh, contain tremendous amounts of symbolism. You know, you see a beautiful picture, but there's also a tremendous amount of symbolism, particularly the religious symbolism. Yes, it's interesting you talk about it because I thought, what pictures, what painting would come to me if I listen to the tenth? Bosch. Mm -hmm. It's Bosch. In every figure, there is a symbol, there is an idea. And every phrase he plays, there is a different idea. But Bosch is dark. Couldn't say that, you know, this is really sunny paintings. Mm -hmm. So this is what exactly what's happening. Sometimes I think about the scream as well. Yes. yes, oh sure. You know. But when you when you consider th what he was writing and the tremendous uh, contrasts between some of the pieces he was writing, you know, we were talking earlier and you mentioned he'd written a lot of movie music. Oh, yes. And this it, is it was all approved by the government and then at the same time as undermining it by writing something completely different. I, I checked some dates, if you don't mind. Far away. So, um, let's go recent. Uh, I was born in 1948. In 1948, Shostakovich wrote his uh, first violin concerto. He didn't publish it until 1955. In 1948, the infamous Zhdanov's speech, letter, decree came about Soviet composers, how they should write music. Uh, we all know about it. In the same year, Shostakovich writes, in May 1947, film music to the young guards. In 1948, the meeting on the Elbe, and in 1949, the fall of the Berlin, of Berlin. All propaganda movies approved and looked over with the Central Committee of Communist Party, particularly by Comrade Stalin, who knew very well the value of film as a propaganda tool. And he knew that the effect of these movies will be tenfold uh, if the music is written by as genius, somebody as genius as Shostakovich. So he would Basically, he was told, write this music, please. It was quite lucrative. He was paid a lot of money. And after this, he would receive, uh, probably on the next week after Zhdanov, uh speech, it would be a different article where it was that he receiving a Stalin prize of whatever, something. Has anyone ever satisfactorily explained what bourgeois music is? 
or what the official line of, of, of officially approved music is in the Soviet Union? I, I think they did in certain, first of all, you realize that in 1934, and I checked the date, in 1934 an official committee was created uh, by decree, uh, basically a censorship committee which was supposed to overlook any musical, particularly musical production, which means ballet, symphony, instrumental music, movie music. Uh, all this music was supposed to be before this committee, not later than 10 days before the premiere. And if they don't approve it, then of course the composer is a bourgeois lucky and everything what comes with this description. And it's not that you get a slap on the wrist for it or say, don't do it anymore. The consequence it would be deadly. And so the idea, I think, of the social realism was to create sort of a Potemkin village of music, which everything is Zdanov road. The Soviet music could write only about two things, good, and better. There are no doubts. There is nothing to think negatively. You cannot doubt, you cannot think, you just say, hurrah. So, so it's all about progress and optimism in the same way that the five-year plans were. Absolutely, absolutely. And don't you have doubt about it? But how could they identify subversive music? What would uh, be the hallmarks of subversive music? The music is, some music has different language. Uh, music is very subjective <laughs> language. The language of Mozart is one language. The language of Brahms is a different language. In, in, in time, in, in the language of Bach was not understood properly. And then years later, Mendelssohn discovers this and everybody goes, oh, this is a god alive. Something like this. Shostakovich language was way ahead of the language they would use as, a Pro as Prokofiev. Uh, way ahead of people who are not educated to understand. In order to understand the language, you have to study it. They didn't. They didn't want to study it. They wanted primitive language. So what do you think his biggest influences were in terms of composition? I mean, he came out, as I said, even as a young man in the first symphony as a very, very identifiable voice. But what do you think his uh, inspirations think were? I have a question for you. Stravinsky, Firebird Suite, the beginning. The 10th symphony, the beginning. It sounds the same. Except no. Because when you hear Stravinsky, you knew immediately that you expect a spark, something miracle. After four bars of Shostakovich, you know that you're in a dark water. It's going to be a sad story. Yeah, it's not going to be a horrible story. Uh, and so I think his influence was uh, Mahler. A lot of Mahler, I hear. Uh, Wagner sometimes. Uh, but then he basically kind of used it in his own way. It's, we, we all influence, as musicians, we are all influenced. We play sometimes in style of this and style of that. And he basically reworked it in his own way. You know, the big strands of 20th century music, I suppose, are, you know, the Stravinsky strand and then the Bartok strand and then the second Viennese school. Do you think there was much interplay in Shostakovich's mind between those types of things? I mean, Bartok was very folk. Um, inspired by a lot of this stuff? I, d I don't know. I, I think that, the, again, it's my personal thing. I think that he was very, in the beginning, if you listen to the first symphony and piano concerto and the nose, 
he could go anyway and be probably some sometimes you know we listen to Strauss uh, to, to this to, to this music but then um the life dictate him his language he could not write about what he wrote about about this life what you know we're discussing using different language it's just the situation forced him into this so he would e- either rely uh, either write a propaganda stuff which was completely you know like you want me to do it you pay me for it okay have it and it's also well-being of the family we all have to be safe you mm-hmm. you know. But then he would write the ten symphonies, uh, the cello concerto, the fiddle concerto. There are any, there are a lot of outbursts in Shostakovich. I'm thinking about particularly uh, in trombone writing. He'll write this kind of a rude trombone outburst. It happens in the Ninth Symphony particularly. But he, he has this kind of a circus style that he writes in some of his prestos. And is he is that always satirical, or is that is that have a different kind of a tradition behind it? Um, first of all, I, I, I don't think about trombone as an instrument, as a satirical instrument. A violin could be a satirical instrument. Uh, a flute. Of course, but uh, the trombone uh, is a bit ruder. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, don't forget, Shostakovich starts his career as a, as a piano player for, circo, uh, for, for silent movies. Mm-hmm. And the first silent movies is all circus. So he had it in his... That's uh, where it comes from. Then, yeah, a little bit on the, in his system that trombone is... Yeah, I know. He always gives a sad solo to bassoon or contrabassoon right. or clarinet, I, and, and and the tuba will provide the foundation. But trombone is always something fancy. I, it's since Haydn. Yeah, you know they all uh, Papa Haydn started it. <laughs> so it's like the Keystone Cops a little bit, then, yeah, in a way. But it's interesting the way he, as you said earlier, he has these moments where it sounds as though things are going to be okay, and he has these sort of comedians gallop yeah. types of pieces. But there's always this kind of undercurrent of of fear and uncertainty. Yeah, about it. but don't forget that you know, in tradition, in circus, the clown was very funny, but underlined was always very, sometimes very, very, very sad. Very serious. How how do people think? I mean, I don't know how much contact you have with uh, with Russia now, but there's always been a mystery to me how much they advance the cause of culture, they support culture. And yet, so many people defect. I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a double-edged sword. How, how do they? How do they square that? Um, it's it's it, 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 it's a complicated question. Uh, people left Russia, like I did, not because of culture, but because of different things. It's a different topic of conversation. Um, a lot of people who were in 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 business of culture in 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 the trade, um, if I shall say, um, had to leave because of these reasons. Uh, the school is still there, the, the school of uh, experimenting, the traditions are still there, uh, especially in today's Russia, a lot of people who, who have talent, they can study anywhere in the world. They can study with the same Russian teacher, except in New York, mm-hmm. or I- I in Tel Aviv, or, or, or in Paris, or anywhere. And so I think that, basically, I listen to some of their music, <coughs> you know, music by part. Uh, Denisov and all these contemporary Russian composers, some of them are really, really good. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's not that. If they will be allowed to do things their own way, if they will be allowed to experiment, to try, 
to make mistakes, to, to mess things up, then something will happen. But the thing is, obviously, I, first of all, I want to ask you about your own musical training. Uh, what, what did they teach you? <sighs> Sorry. Um, again, uh, in school, when I went to school, the only thing they basically teach me properly was to play violin. The rest was political indoctrination. And you either go with it or you don't. Or you listen to it on a lecture, then you cannot skip the lecture because you're losing your student's yeah. grant and you have nothing to eat. On, uh, you have no money. So we had subjects like communist ethics or atheism or the history of communist party or the Soviet history and things like that. And they all were taught from perspective of, from, pro, from point of view of uh, government uh, curriculum. And um, nobody took it seriously, but we never, you know, we dis they never discuss it. And if you want to get educated, you do it yourself. And I was lucky. I find friends, teachers, who l basically, when they felt eventually trust in me, meaning I would not open my mouth and brag about certain things on every corner, then they taught me. They taught me poetry, they taught me poetry of Pasternak, poetry of Mandelstam, uh, what music of Shostakovich mean, what did he mean by this. Uh, you know, we discussed it. It was rather clandestine, clandestine in a sense you don't talk about it. You go to somebody's house, you, you have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, and you talk uh, ad nauseum until you, you, you fall asleep and um, because in this time when I was studying it was like uh, 70s it was a lot of students um, what they call them, we call them student protests uh, it was uh, the KGB were stamping down on intellectuals who tried to basically you know after 1967 after Czechoslovakia it was a lot of talk about a lot of things happening so they basically infiltrated this uh, universities with their own people and we're checking and uh, if you're not careful you can get expelled or worse. Tell me about the first time you read 1984. <laughs> 1984, well, um, it was in the 70s I was preparing to emigrate. Uh, I was, I got a gig with some orchestra in the province and I uh, met people and we talked and they liked me, they invited me to their house for a glass of tea and I come there and I see a book on the table in Russian and it says 1984. I have no idea what does it mean, I just opened the book. I opened the book and I realized what it is and so I said to the, uh, to the host of the house, uh, can I read the book please? And his answer was very simple, he said sure, you can. You will read it here, you come to my house and you read it. And remember, if you open your mouth, you will get three years. And I will get five, because I'm a conspirator, and I will distribute the book. Understood? Yeah. So this is how you learn the value of the literature. <laughs> so when you hear a piece like Shostakovich 10th, with all those haunting solos, mm -hmm. what does that make you think about? Well, this makes me think about a poet with the name Mandelstam who lived, uh, was friend of Ahmatova, friend of Pasternak, friend of Tsitaeva, um, great poet, didn't confirm at all. 
refused to do it. Basically, he said, I am ready to die. Um, he wrote some lines which would describe the Shostakovich tense, uh, the name of the poem as Leningrad, written in December of 1930. And in English, it sounds something like this. I'm, it's, it's, um, Peterburg, I still have the addresses where I can call on the speech of the dead. And all night through I wait for precious guests, rattling like shackles the chains on the doors. Can I say better than this? And uh, this is exactly what the 10th symphony, the beginning of the first movement, fear, loneliness, anticipation of horror. Anticipation of horror is worse than the horror itself. And so the whole first movement is like this. Loud, softer, softer, louder, screaming. You know, screaming silence, this is what it is. The screaming silence of three forte. And then comes the second movement. Complete evil. I know there are ideas that it's, you know, portrait of Stalin. It, it's, it's not really relevant whose portrait it is. It's, it's relentless, pounding evil all around you. And then comes the sort new movement, uh, and um, it's like nocturne, you know, like Mahler's mm -hmm. uh, parts. And the again, it's not relevant for me. The horn solo, it's a mirror solo, or it's love solo. It really doesn't matter. It's so hounding. It's actually in all traditions of German school, you know, when they write the, the great Strauss would write the great solos for, except instead of being very bombastic. This is so sad, it's so... And um, then comes his signature. I was there. I am here. I am the witness. He's my signature. And so this is what music makes me think, and always the same. Always the same. Fear and loneliness. And I think this was the general emotion of the years, in reality. I mean, can you think of a composer who describes that sense any better than Shostakovich does. I can't. Can you? No. No. Mahler has great moments, but it's completely different language. You cannot change it. It was Vienna. Mahler, Mahler had completely different motivation to write this music. But Shostakovich, you know, it was everyday life. You live and you wait. Ta, ta, ta. This is what he wrote. Mm -hmm. How do you knock the door? Two eights and a quarter. It's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks very much for your insights, Lev, and we look forward to the concert. My pleasure. Me too. <laughs> Thank you.
This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NEC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. Thank you.